Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Today we're taking a little diversion from our normal sorts of bios about people and actually looking into the bio of an organization, which is the New York Philharmonic. Ooh. <laughs> oh yes. Before we get into our history lesson, Asa, what are your perceptions and feelings towards the New York Phil? I mean, they're an institution, right? They are an American great of performance. Um, they've been around for a very long time. They have always released impressive recordings um, and impressive performances. I've never actually been privileged enough to see them live, but I would absolutely love to. Cool. Do you feel like it's a an expensive thing to go see? It's like, let's say you were in New York. Uh huh. Do you feel like, and this is just like, your perception without like looking it up. Do you think it would be expensive to go see them? I I would expect that it would be a not an extravagant night out on the town, but you know, a nice night out. Okay. Something, you know, I'd, I'd spend a a few bucks more, 100 bucks or so for for good tickets. Okay. Okay. Something like that and I and I probably wouldn't be I probably wouldn't be super disappointed. All right. That sounds good. I guess compared to your experience with your local orchestra in Denver, compare and contrast. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would, I would say this: that there is absolutely nothing wrong with the Colorado Philharmonic Orchestra, and I'm happy every time that I get to go see them. But the organizations like the New York Philharmonic and Chicago Philharmonic, London stuff like that. I mean. The, the experience of ex- of experiencing one of these prestigious <laughs> organizations live in their element in the greatest concert halls in the world, I mm-hmm. think is is worth something. And that's a very I think that's a very big point is that the halls that they perform in are just as renowned as the groups themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a, an excellent point. It's like go- it's like going to Red Rocks versus, a, you know, just a, a field. yeah i guess (laughs) we'll get into a little bit about the halls that the new york phil has played in in a little bit here right um but yeah i i see where you're coming from there interesting okay cool yeah i think there's definitely a little bit of a prestige factor attached to it and you know you put the recording side by side i'm i might not be able to tell a difference right away but Mm -hmm. i don't know it's it's the experience maybe i wouldn't be so inclined to pay the the surcharge if it was a weekly thing but then i'd have you know season tickets anyways oh would you oh fancy (laughs) all right well since i did all the research for this i'm going to i've already been biased so i'm not going to state my opinions but thank you for sharing yours you're welcome let's let's actually talk about the orchestra itself now then shall we sure obviously the new york philharmonic is a big name in the classical music world 
Surely, of course, this is in part because it hails from one of the most iconic metropolises in the entire world, because who doesn't know the name of New York? Mm -hmm. However, it also has a monumental claim to fame, being one of the oldest orchestras in the world. And definitely the oldest and longest running orchestra in America. So the orchestra itself was actually founded in 1842, but it actually looked a lot different than the New York Phil we know today. First, it was actually called the Philharmonic Society of New York. And just to preface all of the information we're going to tell you here, if you do go to the New York Phil's website, they actually have an incredibly robust digital archive of literally every single record, program, copy of the bylaws, etc., in all dating, including back to the very first thing they ever produced in 1842. So everything we say, you can go find for yourself on their website <laughs> and more. Um, but we actually know from all of these primary sources that the society was, quote, owned by the players. So essentially, there was actually a set number of members, which according to the bylaws was no more than 100 at the time, who would split kind of the managerial duties and the income, of course, throughout the entire concert season. The first program of the New York Phil was epic. It opened with the iconic Fifth Symphony of Beethoven and also included works of Rossini, Weber, Hummel, Mozart, and Kaliwoda. And as you could predict by some of these names, little scenes from operas were included, so guest soloists were also featured. And interestingly, when looking at this program in the digital archive, it actually includes English translations of the opera arias, which makes sense being an American <laughs> company. But I think that's something that's not too commonly seen even in the modern day. Mm-hmm. There's occasionally you'll get like a little like projector screen that has a translation, but... Where did... I feel like I went to a program with you in college, Allison, where there were mm -hmm. like little LCD screens on the seats. I feel like that was the ballet. I feel like it was, but it was like giving us translations. I don't feel like it was translations. I think it was just like story beats. Oh, gotcha. Maybe, yeah, yeah maybe, I can't remember what it was, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is kind of few and far between. I feel more often than not when I've gone to a vocal program, it's not had translations provided yeah. anywhere that we could see. Yep. With being such an old institution, the orchestra had to weather some serious historical events, the first being the Civil War. Apparently, during one fateful concert, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was on the program. However, just a few days earlier, President Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. And obviously, this symphony concludes with the triumphant ode to joy. And they didn't feel like that was the right atmosphere. So rather than right, just change... Right, not tonally correct there. Right. So rather than just changing the program, the orchestra omitted the final movement. The orchestra at that time, it went along with actually rotating conductors didn't have one set conductor position. And this was until 1849 when Theodore Ellsfield got to be the solo conductor for the entire season. And as with orchestras, even now, conductors would come and go. So one such conductor was Leopold Damrosch, and he was instated as the society's conductor from 1876 to 1877. However, the public didn't really like him, unfortunately. And so rather than staying to fight for a positive public opinion, 
he just decided to leave and make his own orchestra. <laughs> so, for the first time in 1878, the Philharmonic Society had competition with the newly minted Symphony Society of New York, rather than the <laughs> Philharmonic Society. <laughs> Though the second orchestra easily could have fallen to the ranks of being second-rate, it did not. In fact, the Symphony Society had the claim to fame of actually being supported by the millionaire Andrew Carnegie and had the privilege to play in the newly built Carnegie Hall. So there we go, talking about those incredibly famous halls. Mm -hmm. And Carnegie Hall was actually renowned for being pretty acoustically sound at the time, which is amazing. Get so, it? Acoustically sound? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> The inaugural night of Carnegie Hall was one for the history books. The Symphony Society had the chance to be conducted by none other than Tchaikovsky himself. That would have been one to see. All right. What a get. I so, know. They definitely were some big competition for the Philharmonic Society. Absolutely. And maybe that's why for a while they were financially struggling. The Philharmonic Society. Yeah, the Philharmonic Society. Thank you. <laughs> Um, which, ironically, struggling orchestras are a theme that we'll probably come back to at some point. However, yep, yep. in 1909, it attracted the attention of wealthy female socialites, Mary Saini Sheldon and Minnie Untermeyer. They became joint presidents of the Guarantors Committee that then helped assure financial stability for the Philharmonic Society. However, that did come with changes to the overall Philharmonic structure. No longer did the musicians own the orchestra but rather they became employees under new corporate management. However, potentially this was better as the committee could spend their time working out financials while the musicians could focus on music. And the committee also brought in a huge name of their own for the conductor position in 1909, Gustav Mahler. Oh my gosh, Asa, would you rather have been conducted by Tchaikovsky or Mahler? Oh man conducted by yeah like okay think of you know you the regular experience of being conducted you know there's rehearsals you know they have to not teach you the piece but teach you how they want the piece right and, and then of course you have to be there for the performance so who would you want to be conducted by not whose music would i want to play Right. Who would I rather it, be conducted say, by? Okay, let's say both of them are going to be conducting... Oh, gosh, we're just going to well, throw Beethoven's fifth out yeah, there. <laughs> they're obviously going to put one of their pieces on the program and then also another one. Yes. Mm, that is a tough question. I think... Oh, man, I don't know. I would. It's a really hard question. It's a really it? hard question. I would probably say Tchaikovsky. Okay, cool. Well, I'll say Mahler. Uh -huh. So we're split. We are. There. I should go join the Symphony Society. Uh, okay, well, I will join the Philharmonic Society and we'll have a brutal we'll have a battle for who's off. the best. <laughs> we have to resurrect them from the dead first. <laughs> Maybe we can have Franz Liszt help us. Maybe. <laughs> so getting back to the bio then, although some of us here on the coffee house might think that Mahler was a big get and would have been supportive <laughs> of this conducting choice had she lived back then. Hey, I think you would have been supportive too. <laughs> Probably. Come on. Don't lie well, to yourself. <laughs> Mahler was actually a very controversial figure back then. 
His music was, quote, too modern, and his interpretations of other compositions in his role as conductor was often different than what people were used to. So maybe we hmm. uh, maybe we would have disagreed then as well. Okay, but he was expanding everyone's horizons. Sometimes people need a little bit of change in their ideas. Yeah, but some people sometimes people just need some comfort. <laughs> okay, Sa- fine. Sadly though, Mahler unexpectedly passed away 2 years later in 1911, and so his turn at the helm was indeed cut short. However, there were big things that were coming for the orchestra that helped to shape it into something that is much more akin to the New York Phil that we do have today. Following Mahler, the Philharmonic Society appointed Joseph Stronsky as the conductor. Under his lead in 1914, the Philharmonic Society began the tradition of the Young People's Concerts. You might be more familiar with these during Bernstein's reign with popularizing these, but we see that they actually started long before him. And also notable in history in 1914 was that the Philharmonic released its very first commercial recording, again with Stronsky leading. So let's return to probably the most somber note when talking about any symphony group, money. Because although Mm -hmm. audiences of New York had grown to love their orchestral music, and the New York Phil was backed by some wealthy patrons, running a symphony was and still is a notorious money pit. In addition to the original Philharmonic Society and the younger sibling, the Symphony Society, by the 1920s, New York was also home to a certain National Symphony Orchestra. Of note, this is not the National Symphony that currently resides in Washington, D.C. So in some consolidation in 1921, the Philharmonic absorbed the then National Symphony, and finally, to make one symphony to rule them all, the (laughs) Philharmonic Society and the Symphony Society put aside their differences in 1928 and joined forces. One giant major symphony to rule over all of New York. (laughs) (laughs) Get it? A major symphony? Oh, hey, yeah. (laughs) And though this sounds like it could have just been one big, happy musical family, it actually must have been quite hard on the orchestra members in both orchestras, because due to actually the normal instrumentation of traditional orchestra music, it really wouldn't be practical to just have every single orchestra member from both orchestras continue to play together. I mean, imagine if you already had, you know, two clarinets and your auxiliary clarinetist in one orchestra, and then that same number of people in the other, suddenly you have six clarinetists. There's no pieces written for that. Come on. Or Carnegie could have just built Hall 2 a lot bigger <laughs> so that they could have all fit. But, you know, we blame the or- we blame the composers instead. Do you want to make it standard then that they just double everything? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, okay, granted, Mahler did write some things for double orchestra, but not most But he things. died. Before they merged, so he wasn't around to tell them what to do. Yeah, right. So anyway, sadly, twenty musicians were actually fired from the Philharmonic Society, and they were replaced with just twenty musicians hired from the Symphony Society, and all the rest just had to go figure out something else to do. Yeah. So I'm sure there were some hard feelings all around. However, after the merger, the New York Phil, as we know it today had finally come to fruition, and it did continue to flourish. 
but of course it always hasn't been smooth sailing. There have been several instances of potential strikes that were stopped just in the nick of time, but sometimes negotiations didn't go through on time. This occurred notably in 1961 and again in 1973. When management and the musicians' union were unable to come to an agreement about musician wages, offering just a 3% increase over a three-year contract. And keep in mind, these musicians are also often living in New York City, a famous place where renting a studio <laughs> apartment costs the same as a mortgage for a decent-sized house. And even in recent years, the pay of professional musicians has remained criminally low. In a few years ago, there were strikes or threats of strikes from numerous major orchestras across the country, and I feel like we generally hear, you know, undercurrents of unhappiness with with pay and mm -hmm. just pretty much every year there's always a discussion right and i mean that it seems to have been kind of a holdover from the very early times of classical music where musicians were often more lower class and had to be supported by their patrons and for some reason they are still viewed as not deserving of a living wage i mean even even now like musicians and society and concert societies are essentially paid under patronage whether it's from individual wealthy patrons or from trusts and foundations and nonprofit foundations mm -hmm. and they operate generally as nonprofit societies um because right. you just like ticket sales alone right. do not cover the, the amount of the amount of money that you would need to generate from ticket sales alone would make them prohibitively expensive for you know or a mass market to gain the volume that you would need at those prices. Mm -hmm. So you either right. price people out or you rely on, on donations and patronage, which, which is the, which is the model. And unfortunately that doesn't really leave a lot of room to pay musicians the way they potentially ought to be paid. Right. And it's often very volatile as well. Right. Because, I mean, you can't always guarantee you're going to get those same donations or have the same companies decide to back you or, you know, any number of things can vary year to year. And so, of course, the musicians always have to, you know, go to these fundraising events like the galas and silent auctions, things like that. And it's always, it always seems very tenuous <laughs> of like, well, we get the funding. Yeah. And generally they're holding multiple positions. Right. A, a, right, a musician, right. you know, the, the musician in in a Philharmonic Orchestra also has a solo discography, also performs with multiple smaller groups. Um, Might be a professor at a university and have right. tenure there. Right. So or have a completely other job that is unrelated <laughs> to music. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The life of a professional orchestral musician is a difficult and I would assume exciting one. I would assume so. There was actually when I was reading about the strike of the 1973, um, someone had said one of the newspapers had asked the musicians, you're doing this for the love of the music. Why do you need to be paid? Which is just an outrageous question. Yeah, absolutely. Like, sure, they're doing it. Their Their job is music because they love it, but that it's their job. Right. People have jobs for a reason. And it's to get the money. <laughs> I enjoy fiber optic telecom engineering, but if they stopped paying me because I loved it, then I would walk right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, just, anyway. it just means that you like your job, but it's still a job. 
Um, right, anyways, right. to kind of cap off that discussion, <laughs> this is actually something that I would love to discuss on the podcast with somebody or somebody's that have more knowledge, um, potentially orchestral musicians who have lived through that kind of life um, or administrators or whoever might want to talk. So if you know, if you are someone who would be able to offer that kind of insight, do contact us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. We can make an episode of it. Yes. That would be great. Great plug. Yep. All right. So let's, right. Uh, let's further, let's, let's get away from money and start talking about conductors. Yeah. So, of course, kind of in the mid-1900s, we really start to get some of the real recognizable names for our conductors that I feel like most people have heard, especially if they're in, you know, any sort of classical music realm. So, of course, we had Toscanini from 1928 to 1936, the titular Bernstein, Bernstein, <laughs> um, from 1958 to 1969, and Boulet from 1971 to 1977. As we mentioned before, Bernstein really put the New York Phil in the public consciousness. And, you know, I think that's really when we start truly recognizing this as, like, one of the great ensembles. Um, and it was in part because of what he actually did with the young people's orchestras, because he had them televised for the first time. So it really brought the symphony right to the public. And of course, he was also a great composer, because I'm sure, you know, many of the general populace is familiar with things like West Side Story. I feel like you don't have to know orchestra music to know West Side Story. Absolutely. A lot of times it takes a, a, a more of a populist figure like that to bring new ideas and new methods to an established and incredible group to really bring it to the next level, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then continuing on through the nineties until now, of course we see the New York Philharmonic putting out incredible recordings. And with that, the conductor's names get put into our heads and our personal disc collections. Again, just <laughs> naming some names. You've probably heard of folks like Kurt Masser, Lauren Mazel, and Alan Gilbert. I feel like those, of course, these ones being in the 1990s, very, very recent. Um, I feel like most people have heard of those if they've, you know, recently gotten into classical music and, and are looking for albums on, you know, even Spotify. You'll see absolutely. these conductor names. And you or your parents probably have CDs or cassette tapes of these folks recordings, you know, in, in shelves at home. Um, extremely popular and extremely mm -hmm. great recordings. And and as someone who's never lived in New York, like that's my experience to the New York Phil, right? Is mm -hmm. hearing those recordings as a kid and as a student. Um and that's that's where I get the experience. <laughs> so we are thankful for those recordings. Absolutely. <laughs> so the most recent conductor as of November 2022 is Jop van Sweden formerly a violin soloist turned conductor who took over the podium in 2018. And he's actually set to leave the conductor's post at the end of this year's season. In 2020, the entire orchestral world faced huge setbacks and lost dozens of performance opportunities. So potentially the New York public has never really gotten to know Jaap van Sweden. Throughout this season in 2022, the Philharmonic is holding auditions, essentially having several conductors as guests to try them out. In the running, in case you're interested, are Susanna Malky, who would be the first woman to hold permanent conductorship of the New York, New York Phil, 
Gustavo Dudamel, who I'm sure you've heard of, the Venezuelan wunderkind who currently holds the conductorship to the L.A. Phil, the Simon Bolivar Symphony Orchestra, and the Paris <laughs> Opera. And then finally, a fan favorite, Santu Matias Rovli. I apologize if I pronounced that incorrectly. Who is only Sounded beautiful. It did. But he's only 37 years old, which is relatively young in the grand scheme of major symphony conductors. So if we remember, we'll tap back in later with an update on who won the job. Yay! <laughs> so now we've made it all the way to our modern times with the New York Phil. And of course, as one of the leading orchestras in the country and the world, the Phil does strive to be on the cutting edge of new music. They often host world or at least North American premieres at their concerts, and they've established themselves almost as kind of a bit of a modern works orchestra. But to an extent, this has always been the case. Looking back at the list of premieres they have hosted, get it? The list of premieres they have hosted? <laughs> Classics that we might think of today, even back in the 1800s, the Philharmonic Society took a chance and premiered things like Liszt's Symphonic Poem No. 2, Richard Strauss's Symphony in F Minor, and Dvorak's New World Symphony, which, oh my goodness, oh my could God. you imagine <laughs> hearing that for the first time? Ah, I was trying to imagine what it would be like to hear that for the first time live. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, Asa, Asa. That should have been the one that we were saying if you had to be conducted by Mahler or Tchaikovsky conducting Dvorak New World Symphony. Who would you rather oh. be conducted by? <laughs> I'd still probably stick with Tchaikovsky. <laughs> I feel like Mahler because I think they... I, well, I was going to say, I feel like they've had similar experiences, but not really at all. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe Tchaikovsky, because Dvorak was a little bit more in like the Russian classical style. A little bit. So may maybe Tchaikovsky would interpret it better. I don't know. Anyway, in our modern times, the New York Phil is giving modern composers a chance to really hit it big. Because really, having such a reputable symphony perform your work, it's a great way to get people interested in what else you have to offer. So in case you want to see for yourself everything the New York Phil has ever played and premiered, as we mentioned before, they have one of the most robust digital archives that lists all of this for free of charge. It's completely free. Just go onto their website. It's right there. You can see everything. You can. <laughs> So, Allison, any other closing thoughts on the New York Phil or symphonies in general? Um, that's great. Um, definitely go see your symphony, even if it's not the New York Phil. Go support your poor little symphony, your local symphony. Um, but also, I think the New York Phil and the people that make up the New York Phil are great and you know, it should They're be supported. Great. They they deserve to be celebrated as one of the best because they really are. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually inspired to do this episode this week because I was recently rewatching a a show on Amazon Prime called Mozart in the Jungle, and it centers around the New York Phil, and it's great. And it just <laughs> makes me think about like what these people are actually going through and like all the lives that they actually lead and. Yeah, it's a good show. So go watch that if you'd like. It, it's a fictional insight into the New York Phil, but it's very well done for kind of the life of a musician in general. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Allison. And if you listener think that this podcast is just as well done as Mozart in the Jungle, 
do <laughs> share us with a like-minded friend, family member, colleague, or random person on the street, don't do that. Don't just approach them and yell about podcasts. It's not healthy. It's scary. Yes. <laughs> not that it's ever happened to me, but it would be scary. It would be scary. <laughs> Um, and do leave us reviews on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever it is that you get your get your podcast. That's always appreciated. And until next time for the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 was performed by the Folda Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Simon Schindler. You can find the Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.